0: Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for John chapter 12. We'll pick up at verse 44. This is the word of the Lord. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings, has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would illumine our hearts and minds, that you would bless every one of our thoughts and meditations, O you who are our rock and our redeemer, we pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Be seated. So the first question to ask about this text is, when did Jesus say these things? Right, we don't know. There is nothing in the text to indicate uh, the when, other than their position in the whole of John's gospel. The last we read of Jesus' position, his coordinates was that he withdrew from the crowds and went and hid himself. Right, as I said before, the the verses from thirty-seven to fifty seem to be a, a a bookend to the public ministry of, of Jesus, particularly his work in Jerusalem. So either Jesus spoke these w- words during the final week, which we're in, in the, in the flow of the history, um, which I think is likely, or John is, is right before the, um, the time with the disciples in the upper room. He's sort of summarizing the message of Christ over the course of all of his ministry, right? And so um, that could be what John is doing here. Now we see some themes, right, that we've seen already in the uh, life of Jesus and in his preaching. Jesus is one with his Father. that has been repeatedly a theme in this book. He is the light of the world. How many times has he come back to that metaphor? He is the light. Um, And then salvation comes by faith in him, right? John 3.16, and believing in Jesus is the the road to eternal life. Um, Jesus spoke truth which, if not obeyed, will lead to a man's condemnation at the judgment on the last day. He spoke the word, and those who reject his word are not just rejecting him. They're rejecting the Father. And then another theme, the Son of God obeyed and submitted to his Father, even unto death, so that eternal life might come through faith in him. So these, so I mean all those themes are condensed in this part, but they are themes that we've seen through the entire uh, book. So this could be John's summarizing, or it could have been something Jesus said as he turned and hid himself. This is the last thing he said as he was heading out of town to uh, hide himself. But we don't have those details. Now, these themes that I mentioned that we've already hit throughout the gospel, um, and these themes together are the core of the Christian message. They form the very heart of the Christian faith. The Father and the Son are one God. There's really nothing more fundamental than that, nothing more um, foundational for the truth of the Christian faith. To see Jesus is to see the Father. The Son came into the darkness, the sin of this world as light, right? The world is dark, and saying that the world is dark is making a statement about sin, that this world is, the, the, the violence and the and the 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 gore and the the hatred that we see is as a result of sin. Right? It's not, it's not nature, but nature has fallen, so it contributes now, but it is sin. Those who believe in the Son will be saved and will not be cast into hell on the last day, the judgment day, when they are judged by the word. Right? Fundamental principle of the Christian faith: you'll be judged. Everybody who dies and then the judgment. And what is the, what is the standard by which you're judged? It's the word of God. It's what Jesus said. It's the words that proceed out of the mouth of the Lord. Instead, those who believe will be received into the presence of God there to enjoy eternal life, even eternal rest forever. I was listening to some muckety mucks talk about eternal life. Um, uh, artificial intelligence um, brainiacs talk about eternal life, and they were both like, "Oh, eternal life! Ah, oh. you know, I wouldn't want that." And it's because they see eternal life without redemption. I don't want life like it is now. No, none of us do. And so I can understand why they would say, No, I wouldn't want eternal life. Yeah, but if but but if even, even the, the the worlds and the universe are redeemed through the Lord Jesus Christ, then eternal life is something completely new. The new heavens and the new earth. Right? And and it will be glorious. And so these things, dear brothers and sisters, here packed into these six or seven verses, is the Christian faith. Note that the Christian faith is about God's existence, his creation, the fall of man into sin and the plunging of the world into darkness, the rescue mission, the propitiatory sacrifice of the Son of God who came as light into the darkness and the very simplicity of receiving him, which is by faith, by faith in that Son. Then after death, judgment which will separate the sheep from the goats, or those who believe in Christ from those who refused to believe in Christ. I don't believe this is anything new to our era. Ancient Romans and Greeks, Anglo-Saxons, Mongolian emperors, medieval monks... Viking marauders, Soviet socialists, you know, Parisian artists in the 19th century, and 20th century, you know, industrial um, moguls struggled with the same things. But I think these themes, God, sin, death, judgment, salvation, the soul, eternal life, get suppressed so that we can have a love affair with God's creation. The temptation of every man from the fall of Adam until now has been to exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for the worship of created things. Images in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And so because of sin's entrance into God's creation by Adam's rebellion, every era has had a tendency, right, a strong tendency, an absolutely um, inexorable tendency to deify the creation and ignore the creator. And one of the results of this tendency is that these themes we read about in the pages of Scripture that are condensed into this section of Scripture, God, sin, death, judgment, salvation, the soul, eternal life. One of the results of that tendency to go after creation is that those themes just get ignored. Even those who have been regenerated by God who have the Holy Spirit abiding in them, renovating their hearts, minds, and affections, still get hung up on the world. Don't we? Usually getting hung up on the world means setting our affections on what the world offers to us. What we give our time to reveals what we think is important, doesn't it? It does for me. What you set your time, what you give your time to will reveal what is important to you. Or as Jesus puts it, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There your affections, there your loves, there your heart will be what your treasure is. God, sin, death, judgment, salvation, the soul, and eternal life, those things recede in our minds and hearts. And what are we and 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 what are the things that we then give our minds and our hearts to? Well, everything but those things. We give ourselves to money and our reputations and our political opinions and the things that lead to ease and comfort now. And the things that lead, you know, the the biological structure of man as a soulless being and, and the immobile, silent absoluteness of death. In a nutshell, we give ourselves, right, when our minds aren't focused on the things of this passage, we give ourselves to worrying about tomorrow and how we can work out our own salvation apart from God. That's what we do. We worry about tomorrow, and we work out our own salvation apart from God. It grieves me, right? It grieves me. It truly does grieve me that that today's Reformed faith has more to say about politics than it does about God, sin, death, judgment, salvation, the soul, and eternal life. Am I being a pietist and saying that? Someone only interested in personal salvation and holiness and And, you know, not cultural transformation by saying that? Am I being a pietist? Or am I verging on Gnosticism as I've been declared to be a Gnostic? Declaring all physical things, you know, simply unworthy of our attention? Well, maybe I am, but honestly, I don't think so. I am saying that we, God's children, have an inordinate fixation on this world. And it's indicated by the amount of time we spend worshiping God versus giving our attention to politics. I do think that our faith must work itself out in our lives and in our love for our neighbor and we should care about our nation, right? I mean, I spent the week interacting with senators and legislators of this, of this uh, state. But not simply as a matter of winning a cultural battle. Psh. Who cares about a cultural battle? Once the reform take over, the commonwealth will be as bad as Cromwell's was. Okay? Who cares? Who cares about a political commonwealth. I'm concerned that the reformed faith has turned from its first love, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? And that loss of affection for Christ is revealed by the amount of time we spend thinking and speaking about culture and politics and artifice and the latest trends and the analysis of this or that new cultural artifacts right? and threats to democracy and, and all the things that get Tucker Carlson worked up. It's unworthy of your attention, Christians unworthy of your attention. We're simply junkies for that stuff, all of which does what? Just makes us anxious for tomorrow. Makes us anguish, you know, anxious because, because we're like, oh, we better do something. We better strive in the power of our own arms. We better get intelligent. We better you know, figure out cultural way to talk and engage on these things, right? We're junkies, For this, but are we junkies for the message of Scripture? God, sin, death, judgment, salvation, the soul, and eternal life? Are we? Not so much. Not so much. I know this from the simple fact that if I were to give you a sermon titled seven ways to improve your marriage or better yet seven ways to engage your elected officials it would easily hold your attention better than a sermon on Christ one with the father or Christ the light of the world And again, I'm not saying that Scripture doesn't address your marriage or doesn't address culture and politics. It most certainly does. But we are numb to the old paths of Scripture. We are worldlings when it comes to what we allow our minds to dwell on. It. We find it a struggle to set our minds on things above and take them off of the world, which is commanded of us in Scripture. The Holy Spirit desires that for all of us. We cannot tolerate evil men, and we hate the deeds of the Democrats, and we have works, and we toil and have perseverance, but in pursuing these things, have we left our first love? That's a paraphrase of Revelation. They hated the Nicolaitans. We hate the Democrats. I mean, the world and her ways are a powerful draw, aren't they? They powerfully draw you. They always seek to press us into their mold. Their worldviews, they're seeking to make us convert. They proselytize. They have a powerful draw and Far from the world being crucified to us and us to the world, the world vies, right? It vies for first place in our hearts. We hate wokeism more than we love Jesus. And so scripture comes in and dashes those idols to the ground. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. From all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away. It's like, by world. It's just it's a passing thing. And also it's lusts, it's passing away. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So what we do, those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, what do we do? Do we what do we spend more energy on? Every, you know, envying the wicked, coveting our neighbor's prosperity or muscles or intellect or worldly respectability or thinking about the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself A people for his own possession, zealous for good works. What do we think about? I've experienced anxiety. I've experienced anxiety. We've all experienced anxiety, right? No need for us to raise our hands. We've all experienced anxiety. And I hear about more and more of you who live with anxiety as a constant companion. And I grieve for you, right? The number of those in the church who fight this affliction, or should should I call it sin as Scripture does? It's sin. It's sin to be anxious. The number of people in the church who struggle with anxiety seems to be growing and growing. In society, in the church, both places, anxiety. And, and for us, I think it's related to our inability to fix our minds on first things. God, sin, death, judgment, salvation, the soul, eternal life. We just don't think on those things. We don't truly give our minds to those other than just like this quick, oh yeah, I remember that, little band-aid. We desire instead a life without difficulty, just like the promise offered to us in every advertisement and every TikTok video. And when that doesn't happen, the stress of that absence is so terrible to us that our nerves get shot. But we don't stop to think about the actual sovereignty of God. that there is a God who rules over everything in your life and sets it out so that He might be glorified. We don't stop to think about the reality of the fact that He designs trials in our lives so that we might be more like His Son. The glorious fact that Jesus Christ has come into the darkness of this world and shined as the light and that those who believe in him do not remain in darkness. They don't remain there. They're in the light. We are anxious because we are short-sighted. We are anxious because we are worldly. We are anxious because we've forgotten the glory of Jesus Christ. We're anxious because we doubt the promises of God's word because we don't even know them. We are anxious because we are wrapped up in this world and have minds shaped by the world's unbelief. That happens to God's children. And it is the reason that the Apostle Paul prays this way for the Ephesian Christians. you remember his prayer? I pray that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Oh, man. Yes! Yes! That's what I want. Pray that for me, would you? Pray that that's what annihilates my anxiety. Pray that for one another. Pray that being filled up with all the fullness of God, pray that sweet meditations on the glorious Lord Jesus Christ just annihilates all your adherence to the world and its ways. The trajectory of that prayer is that those Ephesian believers would comprehend the love of Christ in all its breadth and length and height and depth. And you know this, dear brothers and sisters, when we increase in our understanding of the love of Christ, it is much harder for anxiety to occupy the primary positions in our hearts and minds. It's true, right? And it is my contention that the church today has not laid the foundation of thinking about these spiritual things. Again, God, sin, death, judgment, salvation, the soul, and eternal life. Those things. Those little things. Without building that foundation we will be of very little use in the earthly works that God does call us to before we gain our reward. Because if we miss that this world was created by God, that sin is the explanation for the presence of evil, that Jesus Christ was the eternally begotten Son of God who came as a sacrifice for sin, that we are saved by faith in that Son, that immediately upon death we stand before him for judgment and that all who confessed Christ in this life will be clothed in the glorious white robes of his righteousness and will therefore hear not guilty at that judgment and that we will live forever from that point on. Well, if we haven't got those things fixed in our minds, then we will live this life like any other worldling. the glory of those things. If you're bored by those things, you're not a Christian. If we are bored by those things, we are very short-sighted. We'll be anxious for tomorrow. We'll, we'll live this life jockeying for position, trying to have as much pleasure as we can now. And what, what I'm really talking about here, and this is sort of a, I jumped off the text into a topical sermon, didn't I? <laughs> what I'm really talking about here is spiritual mindedness. Spiritual mindedness. As John Owen would have put it, anxiety is assaulted by spiritual mindedness. It truly is. Right? The world, in fact, is assaulted by spiritual-mindedness. We will only be satisfied in this life and useful for God's kingdom in this life by setting our minds on the cosmic truths of Scripture continually. Let me quote some John Owen to you. Stand on his shoulders. Listen to this. Consider whether spiritual thoughts constantly take first place when the mind is free to think what it pleases. So whenever you have a moment to yourself, what are you thinking about? It's like, that's a dirty question, John Owen. There are times when men retire into their own thoughts. A man is foolish who is so busy, he has not time to consider the state of his own house and family. No less foolish is the man who spends all his time thinking about other things and never about the state of his own soul. But it is difficult to completely avoid being alone with one's thoughts, though the unspiritual man does his best. If we are spiritually minded, if thoughts of spiritual things abound in us, they will naturally claim these times as their own. (laughs) Ha ha! Whenever you have a moment to think sparely, the spiritual minded, the spirit comes along and says, okay, I'm going to take these for myself and for your good. But if these times are given to other things, then it is clear that we do not think spiritual thoughts to be all that important. If we do not give these times to meditation on spiritual things, then vain thoughts will begin to haunt our minds and please to be entertained these precious moments which could greatly influence our souls to life and peace, if not redeemed, will bring trouble, sorrow, anxiety, and confusion. If we cannot give God our spare time as well as those special times we have dedicated to Him, it is clear that we do not think fellowship with Him is a thing to be greatly desired. What do you think about when you are in bed? This is, this is Owen still. What do you think about when you are in bed, either settling down to sleep or waking up? There are those who work evil upon their beds, Micah 2.1, and there are those who sing aloud upon their beds. The high praises of God are in their mouths, Psalm 149, 5 through 6. There are those who devise mischief on their beds, Psalm 36.4, and there are those who commune with their hearts and remember God and meditate on him in their bed. Psalm 4, 4 and 63, 6. If we would have a claim to spiritual mindedness, we must give these special times to spiritual thoughts and meditations. Okay? Do some self-analysis. Do some self-analysis. Think about what you think about. Think about what you put your mind on. But I'm just so concerned that In the midst of this culture with its constant notifications, its constant messages, its constant media, right? Its constant you have to communicate with people, the constant demands of responding to texts and emails and phone calls that we do not give time to think about our great Savior and meditate on scriptures and let it sink into our hearts. I know it's true of me. I think it might be true of you too. Now, let's look at this passage closely. I could stop there, but I want to give you some things to meditate on, and the truths in this passage are glorious, right? One, to believe in and see Jesus is to believe in and see the Father. Now, why is that a good thing to set your mind on? Because many, many people diminish who Jesus was and is. They make their own determination about him, ignoring what he said about himself and what the scriptures say about him. They believe him to be a prophet or perhaps a great teacher or something less than God. But his own statements, like the one here, do not allow for such a view. To see Jesus is to see the Father because they are one. They are one in essence and unified in their mission to save sinners. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the brightness of the Father's glory and the express image of his person. Bob Vink says about this, he says, an honest assessment of what Jesus says about himself and what he does, what his followers ascribe to him, how they venerate him, all this forces us to choose between Jesus as a mad fanatic a horrendous blasphemer, or the true Son of God? Looking at what Jesus said. What is your assessment? When you look upon Jesus, do you see the Father, or do you see Him as just any other man? If so, you you must accept these words here that Jesus is saying about in John 12 as blasphemy, because He is making Himself equal with God. If you look upon Jesus as he has been shown to you in the inspired word of God, then you see him as God and you know that the predicament of your sins is no longer a predicament, right? God has removed your sins as far as east is from west. Second, Jesus is the light of the world and believers are rescued from darkness by him. They are rescued. There's so much darkness in this world. There's so much darkness in our own hearts, right, resulting from Adam's fall. So much blasphemy and hatred and violence and warfare and lust and pride. But into the darkness of this world, Jesus Christ came as the Son of Righteousness. And the Son of Righteousness rose with healing in his wings. If you have faith in Christ, you are free from this darkness. You have been transformed, transferred from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of, the, of light, the kingdom of God's beloved Son. You no longer walk in the darkness and the light of Christ will always illumine your path. Darkness is not an old friend, right? It is a happiness-destroying master that will lead you to more and more darkness, more and more misery. Jesus has set you free from that. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, that light will shine upon them. You shall multiply the nations. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor is at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, and cloak rolled in blood will be f- for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. I wonder what's on Tucker tonight. I mean, I wonder what he's ranting about. I wonder what fiscal policy, you know, maybe rate increases. Of the Fed. That is so vomitous when you read a passage like that. And the glory of God's zeal accomplishing the redemption of mankind. The zeal of Yahweh was demonstrated in the light being born into the world. In that light, you would seem. To always, you who seem to always walk in the valley of the shadow of death will never stop following you, will never stop being with you. Bask in that light. You are safe. You are safe. The world will judge, the word will judge every man, woman, child who dies and stands before him. Think about that. There is a coming judgment, and the rule book. That will be used to judge those who die as the word of God. There are those who hate that word and mock it, and they will be judged by that word. There are those who ignore that word, and they will be judged by that word. There are those who treat the word like it's a museum piece, right? To be marveled at, but not obeyed. And they will be judged by that word. There are those who read it and memorize it and study it, who honestly just dislike it. And they will be judged by that word. And there are those who hear it, believe it, and earnestly desire to obey it. And they too will be judged by that word. And each man left to himself, if he does not have faith in Jesus Christ, will be condemned by that word. Because that faith is the first and foremost teaching of that word. Romans 3.28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Romans 5.1-3, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. Also, Jesus did the will of his Father by saying exactly what the Father gave him to say, and the will of the Father spoken through and realized by Christ was this, eternal life. Eternal life. The commandment of the Father is eternal life. But so many people read the word and determine that the Father is is mean. That the Father is condemning them to death because they think it is death not to be able to have and love their sins. Most people who reject Christianity do so thinking that it's too heavy a burden. It's too judgy about our desires and our loves. Too negative. And yet Dear brothers and sisters, the commandment of the Father was eternal life. The eternal counsels of God, the eternal counsels of God, in which the Son was crucified before the foundation of the world and the Spirit was marked out to be the the comforter and the applier of salvation, it had a theme. And guess what the theme was? Eternal life. You tell me what this is from. Sir, I perceive by the book in my hand that I am condemned to die, and after that to come the judgment. And I find that I am not willing to do the first and nor able to do the second. And then said, Evangelist, why not willing to die since this life is attended with so many evils? The man answered, because I fear that this burden that is upon my back will sink me lower than the grave and I shall fall into Tophet. And sir, if I be not fit to go to prison, I'm not fit to go to judgment and from thence to execution. And the thoughts of these things make me cry. Then said evangelist, if this be thy condition, why standest thou still? Then he gave him a parchment roll, and there was written within, fly from the wrath to come. The man therefore read it, and looking to evangelist very carefully, said, whither must I fly? And then it said, Evangelist, pointing with his finger over a very wide field, Do you see yonder wicket gate? And the man said, No. Then said the other, Do you see yonder, what was it? Shining light. Do you see the light? Do you see the light through all the darkness? And he said, I do, I think I do. Then said evangelist, keep that light in your eye and go up directly thereto. So shalt thou see the gate at which when thou knockest, it should be told thee what thou shalt do. So I saw in my dream that the man began to run. And now he had not run far from his own door when his wife and children, perceiving it, began to cry after him to come back, come back. Come back. But the man put his fingers in his ears and ran on crying, life, life, eternal life. So he looked not behind him, but fled towards the middle of the plain. What joy it gives to the Father who in the eternal counsels Of himself, of his triune self, decreed eternal life. What joy it gives the Father when men run toward that light, toward his Son. Run toward that light, friends. Run toward it, right? Find rest for your souls. Find light in the midst of your darkness. Find peace before the day of judgment. Find Christ and fix your minds on him. Fix your minds on him. True joy and peace are there to be found. True joy, true peace. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Fly to Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, so many so many distractions. Oh Lord, so many thoughts that run around like a, a locomotive in our minds that derail our our peace. So many so many concerns in this world. So much pain, Father, so much suffering, so much disappointment. And yet, Father, we just want Jesus Christ. We just want him to save us from our sins. Father, we want to be free from the darkness of our own hearts. We want to be free from our minds that are, are split down the middle between affection for the world and affection for you. Lord, we pray that you would give us a hatred for the world. Father, that we, for anything that would come between us and the, the joy we might have in the Lord Jesus Christ, even if that would be uh, the members of our own household, Father, I pray that we would, we would hate those things. <coughs> and Father, help us. Help us to fix our minds on you. Help us to meditate day and night. Help us to assault those anxieties with the the glorious truth of your perfect being, of your powerful word, of your graciousness in sending your Son to die in our place, and of the incredible gift of the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts there Making prayers that that are too deep for words. Oh God, help us to fix our minds on things above. Forgive us, Father, for the cesspool of our hearts and minds. Forgive us for running after things and trying to find permanence and things that are, are going to fade away, even the world. And let us hope in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.